Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week on Investment Uncut, we are taking a look at investing from the board level view. And joining us for that discussion, we have Sally Bridgeland. Sally is an independent director with various roles, including at Royal London, where she chairs the With Profits Committee, Impacts Investment, where she's an independent director, and the local pensions partnership, where she's a trustee. Sally, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dan. Sally, welcome. Before we kick off, I think it would be helpful if you give us a little bit more detail on the various roles that you've got and perhaps how you got into some of those roles. Yes. Well, the roles that I have really cover the whole chain of investments, really from the the asset owner perspective at Local Pensions Partnership and Royal London. It's also the asset manager perspective. And one of the reasons I wanted to get involved in these roles was really to see which parts of the governance chain could be influential. Having been an investment consultant and an actuary for 20 years and then being a chief executive and trustee at the BP Pension Fund, it was really trying to see where are the buttons that you can press, where can you be most influential in terms of engaging with companies that you're investing with and really influencing the world that we're living in. Oh, that's super interesting. There's tons of things we want to dive into there. But before we get into some of the more specifics around what you've seen over the years in those roles, we would love to hear what's one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? (laughs) I practice Reiki, which is not only a way of having mindfulness and physical and emotional therapy, but also is a bit of a way of life. And there are two of the principles of Reiki that I really like, which is just for today, don't get angry. And just for today, don't worry. And the idea there is that negative energy not doesn't help anybody. And it usually just makes you end up feeling more tired and emotional. So that helps, keeps me calm when I'm, maybe I'm not feeling so calm on the inside. That's great. I mean, those are two great principles to live by, aren't they? And I'm sure they Good, good principles to run board meetings by, perhaps, as well, in some <laughs> cases. But I don't, know if, I don't know if you found that helps in those situations as well. Certainly, I wish I'd started it a lot earlier in my career because there have definitely been occasions when you've been wound up by things that people have said or thought or done. And the more that you can just let that go, do that you can do that. And the good thing about the just for today means you don't have to promise to do it forever. It's not like giving up chocolates or something else. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just one day and it's very much one day at a time and that can really help you get through. Yeah, I really like that principle. That's brilliant. It reminds me how I feel when I come back from a holiday and then slowly slip away from that position as as work kicks back in. So, Sally, you said you got involved in lots of different roles, partly to try and work out which which areas of that of that chain you you could have most influence. I guess key question in my mind is, have you worked that out? And what are your views on that from the experience you've had so far? I think I'm still learning. And that's a great position to be in. But in a way, it's a source of disappointment because when you're a consultant you think you can change the world and then when you're a trustee of a big (laughs) pension fund you think you can change the world and then you know you move through the different parts and what you realize is actually there's no one thing everything has to happen at the same time 
I'm a keen cyclist in London. I cycled in London since I was at university over 30 years ago. And what you realise from the boom in cycling now is that it's taken changes in policy, it's taken role models, it's taken all kinds of things, the health benefits, the street provision, all of that has to be lined up for big changes like that to happen. And it takes time. And I may be able to control my anger and my anxiety, but my patience is still not one of my Just reflecting over those breadth of sort of asset owners and investors that you work with, are there any sort of similarities that spring out between them in terms of the sort of the nature of the investment conversation in particular? I think what's important, so I'm a trustee at the the RAF Central Fund, a charity. I'm on the investment committee at the innovation charity, NESTA, and I've been involved with the Nuclear Liabilities Fund and the Lloyds Bank and other pension funds as trustees. And... What is different between the asset owner perspective and the asset manager perspective is that sense of purpose, is that we're doing this for a reason. We're doing this to provide better future financial situations for our customers, our members, our beneficiaries. That it's in the best interest of the beneficiaries is something that's that's really important to me and keeping that in mind all the time. And the more that you can communicate that to the consultants and the asset managers that are working with you to deliver those promises, the better. I think that really does add to the sense of purpose that everybody has. Do you think that can sometimes get lost a little bit in a discussion of sort of risk-adjusted returns and excess alpha and benchmarks and all those sort of things? Yeah, and if I look back to the way that back in 1852, when I started sitting around pension funds, 1986, when I started sitting around pension fund trustee boards and everybody was using peer group benchmarks, just looking at what everybody else was doing. Every way of benchmarking has its problems. But the good thing about peer group benchmarks is you actually didn't know what the benchmark was doing until after the end of the quarter. And so in the meantime, you had to think, what's the right thing to do? What should we be doing with this money? And in a way that had a simplicity and purity around it. Of course, you then want to you want to check you're doing a good job. You want to make sure you're not making mistakes. You want to, to justify what you're doing. And so I think all of the things that have happened to introduce benchmarks, yes, we can say that's introduced short-term thinking. It's the wrong kind of analysis to be doing. Companies shouldn't be thinking on a quarterly basis, yada, yada. But nobody did it to make people think more short-term. It was just trying to make sure that we were doing a good job. That was the intention. What we have to think about now is actually how do we let go on some of that short-term measurement to be able to meet our longer-term perspectives with the right kind of benchmarks and measures. And do you think that's, I, I don't really want to use the word easy, but sort of easier or simpler potentially from a thought process perspective for trustees where they can quite obviously say I'm managing the assets of a scheme that has a long-term nature versus the asset manager position where potentially there's the struggle with the purpose point that you just made, but also that sort of long-term thinking. How do we encourage that thinking on that side of the table? There is something to be done on asset manager remuneration to instill that sense of perspective and time frame, that longer time frame. Yes, the long-term is a series of short-term, but some of these impacts that asset managers, by managing those assets, have to make do play out over a longer time period than just quarterly. So 
so rethinking actually how that works is important. And that is the biggest disconnect between the pension fund and the asset manager. Although, as we see defined benefit pension funds being on their end game, every trustee who's sitting around that table will want to make a noticeable move towards the end game while their tenure, while they are in position. They want to leave the scheme in a better position than when they started. And that is still a relatively short time frame. It'll be less than probably an economic cycle. That's still quite a challenge. And sometimes it's the sponsors or maybe the chief executive if they've got an in-house team who will have that longer time frame that goes across those different spaces that will come and go around the trustee table. Obviously, we spend a lot of our time doing performance monitoring, of course, for our clients. And obviously, clients are always understandably keen to know what's just happened. But have you got any good tips or examples of particular boards you've been on that really managed to keep that good focus on the long term when they've got all these numbers coming at them every quarter saying this manager's done this or that, these asset classes have gone up or down? Any practices that you've found that help just frame it better for the discussions? Yeah, ironically, and this was something that we did at BP after the 2008 crisis, is we started giving the trustees a weekly bulletin of what had happened. And by seeing the ups and downs, and this was a fund that was at the time had a bias towards equity investment, the asset values were going up and down all over the place. And it made you realize that actually taking just a quarterly observation was quite random compared to the way that things had swung around. It helps give you that kind of perspective. So that was one helpful thing, is, is actually looking at something frequently makes you realise how much it moves and gives it that, that context. I think the other thing is to, to focus more on the things that you can do something about, because it can get just very frustrating if you're just looking at the market going up and down thinking about the particular transactions that you can do to reduce risk and take risk off the table and when the timing is going to be right for those. Focusing on that can actually help you feel more in control of a situation. And actually that having that sense is very important in, again, keeping perspective. Mm. I think it's always very tempting, isn't it, to monitor all kinds of things. And we've got triggers left, right and centre, but some of those triggers never lead to anything at all. And in my view, that doesn't make it a trigger. I think a trigger should be something that leads to an action you can take, whether that's starting a conversation, whether that's making an investment switch. They need to be actions focused, I think. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time, really. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm an actuary, so I'm thinking about risks all the time. But I'm very, very keen for risks and dashboards to actually be wired up to something where you can press a button and do something. Otherwise, you sit there and think, yeah, so what? And that's always my question. Around the board table, lots and lots of data, lots and lots of views, sometimes conflicting, sometimes the same on the way that, you know, what shape recovery we're going to have or different, you know, who's going to be the next president, etc. And my question is always, so what? So what and what do we do about it? You know, does that mean that we should be changing something? Do we need to be broadening our ranges? Do we need to flex our policy? Do we need to hedge the more risk? So what? You say that you sort of take on that role as the champion of the so what, if you like. Do you, <laughs> do you feel that's something that the chair can often set the right frame there? Or does it need a particular person like yourself in these examples to be always asking that question? What causes some boards to 
to ask that question well and others just to go around in circles on all the presidency and v-shaped recoveries and all that jazz i think the problem is is it's also very interesting and so it's very yeah, yeah. easy <laughs> to it's very easy to while away the hours of the board meeting just talking about things that are interesting particularly when you've got experts around the table who know something about the subject but the reality is is that is that that can it, it's like we used to have a bit of a joke when i was an investment consultant that the first stage of procrastination is to ask for more training on something and and you will know that <laughs> the training is always it's easy because you know your stuff and you're just enlightening your hapless clients but if they don't end up making a decision at the end of it it can just be training 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 and we're getting nowhere so guiding people to make a decision is important so the most important thing around a board table is the attitude that you bring with asking the so what questions. There are so many ways of asking the so what. <laughs> and yeah. certainly as a chair of a committee or a board, my focus is on making sure that those who are drafting the papers have thought about the so what before it goes to the board. If I'm ending up having to ask the question in the board meeting, I've failed in my job of making sure that the agenda item is ready to be discussed attitude in the meetings is very important too and certainly in my day and most of this is way back when but we still get some instances of it is people playing a sort of almost intellectual one-upmanship on who knows most about stuff and frankly that's not relevant it really isn't relevant at all all you need is to find out what the options are and to help the trustees or whoever's responsible for making a decision to make a decision and also to recognize that not making a decision is also a decision yes absolutely yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah it's a really good point i mean you used that expression a second ago sort of give training to your hapless clients and that in itself is an interesting framing isn't it because if you're not careful when you're as an advisor you can sort of get cast into that role of the sort of the hapless client and the all-knowing wise advisor who's going to sort of dispense all this wisdom and, and make it all clear. And that in itself is probably not a very good place to start in terms of the framing, is it? Because I feel like it's better if we can feel like we're sort of trying to make this decision together. But often both sides end up getting pushed into those roles, which is why it's so interesting you make the point about attitude in a meeting. I think that's often missed. I mean, do you think that's a little bit, do you think that's underappreciated or underrated as a yeah, skill? Yeah, and I right? think what's really interesting at the moment is the emphasis in getting diverse opinions around a board table in being i'm looking for my bit of paper with the, the phrase being a deliberate amateur so many many years ago particular client and i i did a mock-up of a winnie the pooh story where the client was poo and the actuary was owl and it works really well for what things were like back then when the expert advisor was wheeled in and wheeled out as quickly as possible, frankly, having delivered valuation results. And that's the way things used to be. It wasn't so much about the relationship and the understanding of the client and the client's needs. And it's fair to say that after 20 years of being a consultant, it was only when I became a client that I realized actually organizations do have cultures, do have different ways of thinking about things where actually you can really press the right buttons or the wrong buttons as a consultant and really understanding how that culture works and how an organization thinks is absolutely vital. So is it underappreciated? 
actually what a client's needs might be. The reality is, is as a consultant, you're kind of taught to be immune to all clients' cultures. You've got to be able to go in there and not let it affect the integrity of your wisdom and the way that you're, you're putting across your arguments. But actually, there will be ways of saying things. You'll use the wrong words, even when you don't realize you're using the wrong words, because those words mean something to the organization and it doesn't work. So spending time understanding that and rehearsing that and not just thinking about the numbers. The numbers, frankly, are just 20 percent of the advice. It's all about the how you present it. And that's really important. But being a deliberate amateur, I think, is a very powerful way of an advisor coming in. And it's the old two ears and one mouth thing. You listen before you say anything. You need to understand that context because otherwise you won't be heard in the right way going backwards. To be honest, I think having been a woman in those environments, it is easier or it was easier for women to ask the dumb questions. We're supposed to be dumb and not really understand the numbers anyway. But you can't say this is so because this is not a video how much I'm rolling my eyes there. But think it is because you're not so threatening certainly if you're in a room which is very male dominated you can ask those questions more gently and that's, that's probably a great moment to maybe talk about board diversity then because you must have seen a little bit of that over the years or maybe not as much as we would like to see but how would you reflect on the changing role of diversity sort of on the boards that you've seen it's quite interesting i was at a webinar with my rf squadron last week where i happened to be the only woman on it and as somebody finished off by saying Sally and gentlemen, and I thought, blimey, it's a long time since I've heard Sally and gentlemen. But it did used to be all the time. It did used to right. be all the time. And around a trustee meeting. And, you know, you were it was assumed you were the bag carrier rather than the, the advisor, the lead consultant. Even in the last five years, I think it's changed dramatically. There's still a way to go. I still believe that inclusion is the only way to excellence really is that well certainly as just as a mathematician you know that if you put boundaries around a problem it's going to be suboptimal so let's not exclude talent from this particular equation and part of that is it's actually not just about the technical experience that you've got but some of it is about the how you think about problems and how you go about solving those problems and having a different style of doing it that might suit a client culture better. If you could match your, do the dating agency bit on your consultants with your clients and their culture, actually that's where some of the impact of the advice could be improved with exactly the same numbers and almost exactly the same reports. And I guess it comes down a bit to empathy as well, doesn't it? In terms of having those different characters on the board means someone makes a point and everyone doesn't shout them down because actually someone else has had a, an experience that may not be identical but might just give them that level of empathy that makes yeah. the decision yeah, making yeah. better. And there will still be biases in particular cultures and there'll be biases in your own organisation but if you've got different frameworks for looking at actually well around the colours of the insight wheel what have we got going on in this table what are different people worried about what do they what they want to be able to do what are they trying to aim for how do they behave when they get stressed? What do they revert to? That's not in the actuarial exams at all, that stuff. But no, actually, it's, it's really, not. really important in making a decision and making a decision that sticks rather than one that you think has been made. And actually, when you go out of the room, it's not as resilient. But I think that 
this being a deliberate amateur is quite important in those at the top of organisations to have a humility to admit that they don't know everything and to recognise their own weaknesses. And frankly, that's where as a non-executive, if you can do the yin and yang bit and complement the strengths of the executive, that's where you can be of most value to the organisation. One other thing that we've talked about previously on, on the podcast is when you've got a group of people trying to make a decision, you sometimes end up with dominant characters in that group that sort of drive the discussion and sort of almost drive the decision. And you might have others. Surely in the group not in that... investing. I mean, that's never happened in investing. <laughs> never. I, I can't think of any examples of that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just interested in your view, Sally, on, I guess, how you tackle that risk, because I think that risk still exists no matter how diverse on paper the group looks or how diverse their thinking is. Yeah, and I think a good chairman will recognise as the first mover advantage, a first speaker advantage, and will deliberately go around the table in an order that they know will be helpful. And that's quite hard. The reality of meetings is that people tend to focus their own airtime on things they disagree with. If you speak them one-to-one outside the meeting, you'll realise the things that they do agree with. A bit of research in that before a meeting on a decision is, in the 80-20 rule, where's the 80% of this that we're all happy with and getting that consensus is great. It's a great feeling all round the board if you feel like you're getting somewhere rather than that you're just taking step backwards all the time. And that can help give something a momentum that then makes it more difficult for people to just raise picky little points, which actually are not that important, but can make it feel like they don't agree with something and that build that negative momentum. So setting off on the right point is important. Doing the base launch thing of everybody going around and saying, is there any reason why we shouldn't do this? Or are you happy to go? Those, those kinds of approaches are quite high pressure, but actually can force a decision. But there's certainly been times in my life where I've wanted to do the, and I have done the, okay, we're going to start like the Irish peace process, where let's go around the table and first of all, let's agree that today is Wednesday. Today is Wednesday, <laughs> recorded. Uh, and then you, you just kind of get in that frame of mind, right, we're going to make a decision and we're going to have to do something. And even not making a decision as a decision, you know, and presenting it in that way is important. But you'll know as consultants, having a range of decisions and a multiple choice and a, something that makes it easier for people to make a decision so it's the and my classic one is fish fingers or chicken nuggets for supper rather than asking my son what he wants to eat for supper risking me not having it or not having the time or the inclination to cook it <laughs> I know he'll always yeah. say chicken nuggets doesn't particularly like fish fingers <laughs> so, so it sort of frames the let's make this an easy decision here so the more that you can do to make it easier and again that's the advisors and the chair are really instrumental in doing that and bringing things to a close. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you alluded to earlier, you always get those picky questions from the sort of awkward, potentially the so-called awkward person on the on the board or, or the person who always has a certain bee in their bonnet about something that you might not consider to be relevant. And those can seem unhelpful, can't they? But also sometimes you do want people just to come at it from an odd angle sometimes, just to really challenge a decision, don't you? So I don't know if you've got, if you've got any reflections on how you can possibly balance that up where you've got you don't want to have just an endless stream of random thoughts on something but equally you don't just want to wrap up the decision and just sort of slam it through do you and and not allow that space for it to sort of breathe a little bit yeah and I think it's actually particularly difficult in a virtual world because you don't have the same 
you can't smell how people are feeling in the same way. You can't, you can't see. You can't see that they're getting they're getting irked or hot on the collar or something. And the danger is, is that you don't get to know the things that they're irked about or the hobby horses. The hobby horses you can usually see, but the danger is that yes, you haven't got the same airtime. So, and I think that's the that's the big difference between committee sessions and board sessions is that you really do want what we call the BP, the, the brushwood clearing, to go on in the committees and for the board to have the confidence that the committee has done its job in really testing and going through the particular ideas. Now, that can mean that you have to have special, dedicated, single-item agenda, deep-dive sessions that really means that you can build confidence. It's partly training and it's partly confidence building and it's partly expressing concerns so that when the paper, and it might be, say, a couple of weeks before the committee meeting, when that paper comes to the committee, everybody knows what people have been worried about. Those that are writing the paper have actually incorporated those comments and views and it just all eases the way. And you've kind of got to think of it of how do we make this so that we're pushing water downhill rather than a constant fight. But that's a way of getting people's concerns out. And if they're if they're irked, sometimes it'll be the things that they say they're irked about, but sometimes it won't be. And so you need to give enough space so they have got time to really explain what they're worried about. That won't always happen in a group meeting. It may happen more in a virtual meeting or less but it's difficult to judge so sometimes it means that you have got to have more one-to-one conversations with people just paving the way that can help make sure and different people do it in different ways and the more that we increase neurodiversity around boards the more important it will be to accommodate those kinds of styles there are people who are quite happy working at a non-executive level thinking about a risk framework and worrying about what really hits the radar there are those who really do have to understand how this thing works. I drive a car without understanding how it works. I don't drive a car very much, but I ride my bike without really understanding what's going on in my field hub and my dynamo light and all that. Hubby is completely different. He wants to understand how it all works. And we would prepare for meetings in different ways. And you have to respect that as the advisors and the executives. So Sally, just thinking back to investing a little bit, I mean, over the time you would have been involved in investment, there's been a huge amount of trends and and changes that have got on, I suppose, things like UK investors moving away from UK equities and more to global equities, a deeper consideration of liability hedging, I suppose, a richer variety of of strategies around sort of, uh, I suppose, private markets and multi-asset strategies. Reflecting on some of those changes, what things do you think have been adopted and have worked well or, or other things that you feel have been less successful or equally would you recognize different trends that you think have been more important yeah so i mean i was i was there at the birth of multinational index thinking about diversification out of the uk co-invented the phrase responsible investment co-invented ldi and all of those things had good intentions and the reality is is that ideas those ideas that make most money for the participants and have got immediate commercial value will kick off quicker so LDI, which involves derivative trades, away it went easily. Whereas responsible investment, you know, the big competition for long-term responsible investment was 18 years ago now. And that's it's a long time. And again, I'm not patient. I've said that before. <laughs> so it's a shame it took that long. Why do things 
takes so long. Each idea has to have its right moment. But there are some things where you think, I can remember when I joined the Lloyds Bank Pension Fund board and we had the trade review working group that was looking at all the derivative swaps. I thought, is this what we had in mind when we invented LDI? Was it supposed to be this complicated? Was it supposed to be this? Or was it just trying to just make a, a fundamental connection with the liabilities? So cash flow driven investment, which started thinking about when I was at BP and buying things that started off as growth assets, but then would become cash flow generative, particular, you know, property development or infrastructure or whatever, had a kind of automatic hedge to your, to your liabilities. That might have been a purer idea for doing that. Those, those are the kinds of things we thought, I wish I'd thought of that back then. But the reality was, is we're, we're driven by accounting standards or the desire to measure things more frequently that will militate in the opposite direction. I don't think we've done a bad job, frankly. Pensions are being paid. The one area that I wish I'd appreciated sooner was the whole old age care, homes, retirement housing, that bit, which matters so much to pensioners and fundamentally is unsustainable now. That's the one area where I've still got, if I'm going to be allowed to have one hobby horse, that's the thing that I haven't finished with yet. <laughs> you mean directing more investment into that area or just refreshing the system? It's both, because basically, if everybody's expecting to go to care home, then there isn't the right money to sustain that. But equally, most people I speak to, and being the tender age of 55 now and able to draw my pension, not where I want to spend my twilight years. So we need to redesign something. And I think the investing in that from the pension fund's perspective makes so much sense. It's a very good S in the ESG that we could really do something about and really make a difference to our beneficiaries' lives. So Sally, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. We've covered so many different areas. I'm not quite sure how I would summarise, but is there one thing that you would want listeners to take away from this discussion? I think it's about keeping a sense of perspective and purpose and a lot of that is about time frame thinking about actually what's going to make a difference in five ten years time and if you're a long-term investor trying to anticipate that now so the longer that you can think out into the future and imagine whether it's operationally or in investments in economic terms the more that you can lay those plans now and set your investment strategy and your operational strategy to be fit for the future. Cool. And Sally, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? The emotional side of it. So the importance of not getting downheartened when you have a bad period and not getting too overconfident when you've had a good period. Just recognising that nobody knew the future anyway and you were quite lucky or actually nobody knew the future anyway and you just had a bit of bad luck so and everybody can particularly this year people have seen things have panned out quite differently from what everybody expected again it's about keeping that perspective emotionally keeping calm right fantastic tip so just before we leave you sally do you have any recommendations for the listeners books tv shows podcasts anything like that doesn't have to be investment focused <laughs> can be up to you I think a slightly serious one, slightly serious one would be a book that I read maybe 
15, 20 years ago called Tempered Radicals, which is all about kind of how to change things, but without pissing people off. And it's basically recognising that you can introduce new ideas and shake things up without shaking people up. Sally, it's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. My pleasure. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you, Mary. (laughs) Lovely to meet you too. Thanks, Sally. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.